so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. There's no denying that we live in an overly sexualized society. And if the church doesn't address these issues, the world will. At the ERLC National Conference, Ben Stewart, who has years of experience with college students, spoke to this topic in his talk, God, Guys, and Girls, Pursuing Sexual Purity in a Porn Culture. We hope this talk strengthens you to pursue purity. Well, howdy. When I was in college, a buddy of mine and I decided to climb Long's Peak. That's the tallest mountain in the Rockies. Uh, And when we went for it, we were optimistic. We were feeling good about our possibilities. We were passing lesser hikers. We were traversing across snow-covered ledges and nothing but t-shirts, sweatpants, and our Timberlands. Uh, And we were rolling until we got near the top, and then suddenly we started to feel weak. We started to feel drained. We started to feel nauseous. And we started to feel scared. We're like, something's wrong with us. And finally, at one moment, we collapsed. Uh, on a rock and began to pray. And we prayed something like, oh God, we are so stupid. Help us because the truth is we didn't have the resources to go forward or to get ourselves back down. But there in the middle of that crisis, this older hiker just appeared out of nowhere and he was like, hey guys. And he goes, wait a second. You're the college guys who came up here without equipment. You're crazy. Uh, and we're like, right. And he's like, are y'all going to the top? And I began to explain to him that we didn't have the energy. Uh, And he said something to us about God protecting the ignorant. I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention. (laughs) But I'll never forget, as he was trying to urge us to go to the top, I told him, man, we just don't have the resources. And I'll never forget, he stopped and he looked at us for a minute. And then he said, well, first off, boys, you're breathing wrong. So what do you mean I'm breathing wrong? He's like, you're not breathing wrong. I've been breathing since I was a baby. I think I understand how it works. And he says, not up here, you don't. Because the atmosphere changed. And so you have to change if you want to survive within it. And why am I saying that? For this reason, because over the last 10 years, culturally, the atmosphere has changed. Specifically with regards to technology. And it's affecting the vibrancy of the young. So think about it. The internet was not widely available for wide public use until about the mid-90s. So when college seniors were born in 1993, there were 600 websites total on the globe. But now there are billions. That college freshmen this year were born in 1998. That's the same year as Google was invented. Now there's over 3 billion searches daily. The iPhone was introduced in 2007. And with it, the idea of carrying with you the World Wide Web everywhere at all times. That's less than 10 years ago. And now 73% of young people say they feel panicked without it. And you saw that CNN last year reported that teenagers now spend 9 hours a day online. That's now more time than they spend sleeping or talking to their parents. 
And so Dmitry Christakis said it. He's a pediatrician who studies media and children. He says, we are in the midst of a large, uncontrolled experiment on the next generation. We're watching the first generation rise up that is growing up in a high-speed internet image-driven society. And riding on the waves of all that technology is pornography. Huffington Post put it out a year ago that they said porn sites now get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, or Twitter combined. High definition, often violent, highly addictive video of sexual acts that are entering into their lives as adolescents, often when they're not looking for it and don't have the resources to process what they're seeing. But what we do know happens is that they get simultaneously disturbed by the violent images and then drawn to them because it's about sex. And so they get this confusing message instantaneously of being repulsed and drawn in. But what we do know is it's lodging in young hearts. Shame, shame. And so I've been asked to address the pursuit of purity in a porn culture. And the reality is porn is in the air they breathe. And it's affecting them. And so I want to look at the scale of the problem, its effects, and how we respond to it. And with regards to scale, most of you know this, that the number of people that are exposed to pornography in their adolescence is now in the high 90 percentile. It's pretty much every young person. But Mark Regneris, who's a research professor at the University of Texas, published one of the most rigorous and reliable studies on porn use in 18 to 23-year-olds, and he found that 86% of young men self-report interacting with porn at least once a month. 69% of young women report no porn use at all. That means 31% do. That's one out of three young girls, which is significant. But it's nowhere near men. Men are around nine out of ten. Just under 50% of college-age men report watching porn weekly. And while it's mainly men looking at pornography, they're not the only ones affected. Young women are experiencing what Dr. Gail Dines called the pornification of young people. And she explained that by saying she read an interview with a pornographer who said while he's making his porn films, he's finding that girls are arriving at set today porn-ready. And she wanted to understand as a doctor what that meant. And she began to research it. And she said, I found the answer when I interviewed an incarcerated child rapist. Because he was explaining to me how grooming works. When a perpetrator hones in on a victim, what he does is consistently and constantly uh, compliment her look, how hot she is. Because he wants to reinforce the message to her that her value is in her overt sexuality. And then when she begins to believe that, he exploits it. And then the rapist said to her, Now the culture does that for me. That young girls aren't looking at pornography, but they're looking at their pop stars and their role models who are wearing lingerie on stripper poles. They're looking at social media and magazine sites where constantly throughout the day, the options being put in front of them either be overtly sexual or invisible. And what kind of option is that when hardwired into the heart of every adolescent young girl's the desire to be seen? And so you see, even though young women, by and large, are not looking at pornography, they are being affected by it. It's in the air they breathe. And what's the effects of this hypersexualization? Well, one, it's damaging children. The Center for Disease Control estimates that one in six boys and one in four girls are sexually molested before they turn the age of 18. So think about that. If you have a college ministry of 500 students when college is beginning now, 162 of them, if the stats are true, have been abused. Is that affecting the way you talk to them? It divides marriages. 
The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of divorce cases now involve one party having an obsessive interest in online pornography. The president of the society said eight years ago that number was zero. Now it's 56%. It disrupts courtship. Studies are showing that prolonged exposure to pornography leads young people to presume sexual exclusivity is unrealistic, to hold cynical attitudes about love, affection, and marriage. Long hours online is increasing self-reported awkwardness in young men, especially as how they deal with young women. And I run into young men who are confiding that in me all the time. And all of that is contributing, I think, to people getting married later and later. And increasingly, when they do date, they're accepting the invitation to use dating apps, which more and more are just making the only criteria for a potential mate their appearance in a photo. And the most insidious irony about this obsession with sex in our culture is that it actually destroys sex. Because if you look scientifically, all the documentation's there that sex fires the dopamine system, the pleasure chemicals in the brain, but it also releases the hormone oxytocin, which deepens emotional attachment. It's the same hormone that's released when a mother nurses a baby. That's why there's no such thing as casual sex. Paul said it, that when you unite with a prostitute, the two become one flesh. Why? Because hormonally, sex is for bonding. But the problem now is young men are being bonded not to young women, but to a screen. And that incredible dopamine rush is so extreme, they become hooked on it, continually going back for more. And what happens is as they get hooked on the intensity of it, it's burning the circuitry so they're losing the sensitivity to enjoy finer things like conversations, a meal, dating, and romance, the things needed to build a marriage. And now you're seeing young men entering into marriage that are having trouble even having sex with a real woman because they've been so burned by the intensity of pornography. And I remember when I first read that, I wondered if that was true until the day I talked to five young men in one day, newly married, who were having trouble with erectile dysfunction because of their porn addiction. And I look at that and I go, all of that is a technical way of saying what Paul told us centuries ago in Ephesians 4. Having lost sensitivity, they've given themselves up to sensuality with a continual lust for more. That's what I see happening here. Yet here's the reality. Young people don't want this. It's interesting. Donna Friedis is a research professor at Notre Dame. She conducted a 10-year nationwide research on sexuality on college campuses. 100% of the college students she interviewed says sex is casual on campus, but 36% of them say they think it's too casual. They don't like the meaninglessness of the way sexuality is being portrayed to them. And when she interviewed them about hooking up, that is the meaningless, emotionless sex with another person, 41% of the people she interviewed that are involved in hooking up said it made them profoundly unhappy. The other 59%, the highest praise they could muster was the word, it's fine. Not awesome, not amazing, just fine. But when college students were asked, what do you really want? By and large, they all said, we want romance. We want conversation. We want to know and be known. They want real intimacy, but they don't know how to get there. So how do we respond? What do we do? Well, here's the reality that's good news for us. The vehicle of this depravity may have changed, but it's the same problems. Sin always leads to death. You try to break God's laws, they break you. But the good news is the Savior is still sufficient to break the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. He's the same Jesus. 
So when Paul preached to the Corinthians that we're a sexually maniac culture, he says, sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The same resurrection power that beat the grave can beat sexual addiction in young people. It can. But what our young people need is hope and guidance to show them a better way. That's what we can provide. They didn't create this hypersexualized culture. They didn't make Google when they were babies. They were born into it. And they need help understanding how in this new climate, how to breathe. How to breathe out a distorted sexuality. How to take in healthy intimacy. And we need to help them do that. When that older man met me on the mountainside, he didn't shake his finger at me or wag his head about my inability to survive. Rather, he leaned in and showed me how to breathe. And I would beg you as a church and a culture, young people need us to move towards them. If 86% of young men are being fed a steady diet of pornography, I believe it should be one of the baseline things we do in our spiritual formation of young men to have regular conversations about sex. When I disciple young men, I assume a problem with it and move in to deal with it. And I think we all should. If the writer of Proverbs made four out of the first seven chapters about sex, we can talk about sex. If Paul talked about sex to the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, we can talk about sex, and we need to. And how, what do we say? Well, if I could change the metaphor slightly, I would say I think we have to encourage young people to become harder in some places and softer in the right places. What do I mean by that? What I see in young people is they're soft in their barriers against sensual imagery. Because the internet is accessible everywhere, it invades their life everywhere. And they are soft in their boundaries, in the externals. Where they're hard is on themselves. That there's a direct correlation, even among non-Christians, between the number of sexual partners and increased rates of depression. And there's a direct correlation between porn use and a deep sense of shame. What I find in young people is they are hard on themselves here. And a sense of hopelessness haunts them. And what I hate about it is it steals their vibrancy. And so I find that when I look at young people, they're soft in their internal, external defenses. And they're hard on themselves internally. And it's meant to be the complete opposite. The the writer of Hebrews said it in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, in your war against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I love that. They need to get harder in the externals. He says, you're struggling? You're not even bleeding yet. He says we need to get a lot harder in our external boundaries to stop letting the internet have access to us. And I talk to young men about that all the time. Where, if you're persistently failing, does it get you? And what I most often hear is screens near me when I'm going to bed at my weakest, most vulnerable moment. I have access to everything the world has to offer, and it repeatedly beats me. And so I tell them, Roman says, make no provision for the flesh or it lusts. Get that phone out of there. Get that screen out of your room. Put every screen in a public place in your apartment. And they'll say things like, but that phone's my alarm clock. Well, then buy an alarm clock. It's not worth sitting over. But they've never experienced being without it. And so I don't hate on them for it, but it's part of teaching them greater external controls. You got to get a lot harder in the externals of casting this stuff out. And yet it must come from a place internally of knowing you're deeply loved. We have to get softer here. 
in that very same passage where Hebrews was telling them to fight even to the point of shedding blood. He told them why five times because your sons, your sons, your sons, your sons, your sons of a father God who loves you. And the reality is I see so many of them beat themselves up here. And Patrick Carnes, who's one of the leading voices on sexual addiction in our country, says that the base of sexual addiction is feeling unloved and unlovable. It's profound to me, but it's the same thing James said. James says that each one is lured and enticed by his own lust. Lust gives birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. And then he says, don't be deceived, brothers. What's the deception that launches all this sin, James? That we don't have every good and perfect gift coming from our Father above. He says, the lie that launches a million lusts is the belief that God's not a good dad who loves you. And so we can get hard on the externals, but it has to start internally where they know they're loved. They're not fighting for our acceptance. They're fighting from a place of acceptance. And we can model that to them. Jesus was gentle when he met the woman by the well who was sexually devastated in her past and in her present. And we need to not shame them and wag their finger. How can you kids do that? We need to be gentle with them. Empathy dissolves the shame. And we can move in and begin to help them see external controls, internal compassion will come through the community. One of the greatest gifts God's given us is us. And so as we move towards the young, it's not just gospel proclamation, but socialization, teaching them how to walk out their Christian life in a healthy way. If those in Paul's day that wrestled with pornea had a place in the ecclesia, then they have a place in ours too. And when I was in ministry, my first five years in ministry, I saw five men fall out of ministry because of sexual immorality. The common denominator in all of them is they weren't willing to come to the community and say they were struggling. But James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. External controls, internal compassion will come through the community, through us. We need us if we're going to heal these young people, right? I have a group of men that I confess everything to. And every week when we rise up off our knees after praying for one another, I feel safe and I feel strong. And I want that for our young people. When that older man met me on the mountain, he not only taught me to breathe, he enabled me to walk into the very top and look down on clouds. And I want our young people to rise up and be strong in a difficult atmosphere. And they'll do it when the people of Jesus come to equip them with the courage and compassion to struggle well. And I know we all want to do that. Thank you. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the ERLC podcast. You can find more episodes and subscribe at ERLC.com. Tune in next week as we hear about how the gospel shapes our engagement with the arts.